following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been looking through the, the book of James. James wrote this letter. James was known as James the Just. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was not one of the apostles, but was an authority within the church and a leader in the church. And he was writing to Christians, mainly to Jewish Christians, who had been dispersed. If you read in Acts 1.8, it says that uh, Christ said, Stay here um, and you'll receive the power, but then you're to be my disciples in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then you see that the church didn't quite get it. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. They didn't have that vision to go out. And so God, in Acts 8.1, it says that then persecution came upon the church in Jerusalem, and they were dispersed out. And so the group that, that James is writing to are the Jewish Christians mainly, uh, who had been dispersed. They had been displaced because of persecution, and now they were living in other parts of the Roman Empire and the Greek world. And he was writing to teach them really one thing more than anything else, and that is to have integrity within your Christian life, to live a Christian life of integrity. And what he meant by that was to, whatever it is that you say you believe, your faith, your faith in Christ, your faith uh, in the gospel, your faith... Uh, in the salvation that comes to us through the cross, that faith has to, with integrity, be lived out in the way that you then go about your daily lives, your works. He said, don't simply be hearers of the word in chapter 122, but be doers of the word. And later he says that faith without works is dead, and, and that no man is saved by faith alone, but they're saved by their works as well. And it seems to be in conflict with Galatians and Paul's work but it really stands in beautiful uh, relationship with it, of two sides of the same coin, of Paul saying it's only by faith, by grace and mercy alone. And James saying, absolutely it is. It is by the, the royal law, that law of life that's been implanted in your heart, which has changed you. But now, if it's truly been implanted, if it's taken root in your life, you're going to see it lived out. You're going to see it in the way that you live, in the manner in which you live. I've been around in ministry for a good long time, and I've done a lot of uh, weddings, and sadly, I've done a lot of funerals. And the most difficult kind of funeral for me to do is a funeral of someone who I don't know, but their family comes to me and says, this loved one of mine, though the entirety of their life they were known as a scoundrel, as the entirety of their life they never attended church, the entirety of their life uh, wasn't really a good life, but I know uh, that they're in heaven because when they were a kid they went up front and accepted Jesus. And it's a tension that comes because I don't know the person's heart condition. I, I can't look in. I'm not sitting in heaven and knowing if that person is with God uh, through Christ But James would say, be careful. Be careful to think that you can say you love Jesus and it have absolutely no effect on the way you live. James wouldn't have understood that. That is a very modern 
way of thinking. It's an incredibly American way of thinking to say, well, I believe this to be true, uh, but I don't have to have it impact any bit of my daily life. We talked about last week, is obedience optional for the Christian? And we said, of course it's not. It's not optional in any other place you live. It's not optional in a family. It's not optional in our civil, civil government. And it's not optional in God's family and government. That he says, I'm the king, and if you believe in me, and you have faith in me, and you know who you are in me, then you will live in a particular way. But you see, it's driven by first knowing who you are in Christ. Does that make sense? Some of you are here this morning, and you're sort of testing this out. Maybe you're coming back to church, and I want you to hear this. I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that if you live a good life, you're going to get into heaven. If you live a good life, then you're going to be saved. What I'm saying is this. Because of the completed work of Christ and the faith that you have in him that has changed your heart, it will then lead you to live a good life, a life that desires to follow Christ. If you go back into the Old Testament, when... uh, Moses was talking to the people. Uh, He said to them, and God came to them in the Ten Commandments, and the most important part of the Ten Commandments isn't one of the Ten Commandments. In my estimation, the most important part of the Ten Commandments is the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And most of you don't know the prologue to the Ten Commandments. The prologue is this. For I am the Lord your God, who led you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. I have led you out of Egypt. I have taken you out of what is the picture of sin and the dominion of sin and the bondage of sin in your life. I have led you out of that by my gracious actions. Now, therefore, because of what I have already done on your behalf, because of the redemption that I've given you, because of the freedom that I've afforded you and the mercy that I've extended to you, now, therefore, have no other gods before me. Because of what's already completed, don't take my name lightly. Don't have idols. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't do it. You see, we normally do the reverse, don't we? Do these ten things well, and then I'll deliver you. God said, you've missed the entire point. And that's what James is building on. He says, if you get it, and you see what's happened to you in Christ, then you will begin to say, now how is it I should live? My proper thought process, my proper belief has to then lead to proper lifestyle. So, this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 2. We're switching over. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to chapter 2. And we're going to talk for a little bit about one instance that he's bringing up, one highlighted illustration of maybe, if this is in your life, you are not consistently, with integrity, living out the gospel. That maybe if this is a part of your practice in daily life and the practice in life within the church, then you are missing and misunderstanding what the gospel is all about and then gives us a remedy. And the thing that we're talking about today uh, is relating to other people, really dealing with partiality, dealing with partiality of how is it that we are attracted to some and repelled by others, that we love some people based on an external formulation but we're drawn back from other people. And we're going to see what God has to say. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. 
while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said to do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. We would add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. So this week, we look and we're taking on that challenge to be doers of the word and not simply hearers of the word. To take what we are hearing, to take what we're reading, and to put it into daily practice. And the one thing that he brings up here is this. The first point that we're going to look at is partiality within the Christian community is unacceptable. Partiality within the Christian community is unacceptable. Verses 1 to 4, and he really begins there. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I'm not, again, a a massively intellectual person, but I think I can get that one. He says very clearly, folks, partiality within the Christian community is an unacceptable trait. That we can't distinguish between uh, one another based on things that are just humanly contrived. Culturally driven norms. Because he picks up and goes on in in verse 2. He goes, for if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and he comes into your assembly and a poor man is shabby clothing also comes in. You pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in the good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word partiality that he's bringing up there is a Greek word that means to hold the face. It basically means that you are making a distinction based on what you can see. The assessment that you are making with your physical eyes, you are looking at somebody, looking at something physical and making a deep determination of how you're going to respond to it. And what he's saying, what James is challenging us is, in the church assembly, both within this assembly and with just in our Christian daily lives, we can't show that type of partiality. And he uses the rich and the poor man to come in. And he says, how would you respond to that? How would we respond? And it's interesting that James, and quite honestly, uh, much of scripture doesn't have a lot to say about wealthy people that's positive. It challenges the very heart of our capitalistic society that wealth is great. It seems that in a Christian economy, wealth is dangerous. 
uh, because in wealth becomes all this other stuff. And one of the things that came along with wealth was that as you walked into a room and you had your gold ring and your nice robes and your nice clothing, you got a seat of honor. But if you walked in and you were, in our society, maybe a homeless person, maybe you were a prostitute just coming off a long night of walking on the street and you walked into a church, or maybe you were just a mess and you walked in, how would we respond to those two types of people? I wonder all of us would say, well, we would be fine with it. We, we wouldn't respond like this. But I wonder how we would respond. I wonder if a, a bus pulled up, and we're not in an urban area, uh, so maybe it's a little more difficult for us to get a picture of it. But if we were in an urban area, I lived in Charlotte, if they went in Charlotte and picked up all the guys from the homeless shelter, and they brought them all in, where would we want them to sit? Would you want them to sit next to you? It's hard enough to get you to slide over for good-looking folks, by the way. (laughs) It it really is. It's hard enough to get you to move over and have anybody really sit next to you. But what about a person uh, who's just a mess, who smells, who, who doesn't look the way we look, who doesn't speak the way we speak, doesn't, just doesn't fit our mold. We hold the face and say they should look like this. Where would we have that person sit? Hopefully, institutionally, we'd say they can sit anywhere they want to sit. We'd want to put them in a place of honor. But that's an individual thing for you. Where would it land? Lisa and I were involved in a church plant in Memphis, and we wanted to go back towards the city a little bit, and we went into an area called Midtown. And as we were there, we wanted to be a church that, that crossed these lines, that was to begin to break down these lines. And what we found in our own hearts, but what we found in the hearts of so many is we we say that we believe these things. We want to believe them. We want them to flesh out. But it is so hard to work it out in the day-to-day life, isn't it? I was talking to one guy, and he had a group who, he lived in a beautiful home in a nice yard. And there was a group of folks who would come and clean his house and take care of his yard. And he said, Bill, I'm at least nice to him. I'm like, no, what, what we're actually challenging one another on is to go beyond being nice and actually being in relationship with them. He said, so you're expecting those folks to come to our church? I'm like, I sort of thought that'd be good. He goes, you're really thinking that those people who take care of my house and take care of my yard are going to sit at my table and have dinner with me and my family? Yeah. That's kind of what James seems to think. That if the gospel plays itself out in such a way in the hearts that we don't show a partiality based on the human condition. That we don't flinch when someone different from us comes in. That we don't make the distinctions that the world makes. We don't make distinctions by race or by sex or by perceived beauty and manliness, by education or ethnicity. That those things have gone away. For all are made new in Christ Jesus. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer Greek nor uh, Jew. There is no longer male nor female. They are all one in Christ. And so he's saying, as the gospel begins to work its way out, we begin to get rid of those distinctions in our life. And so if we begin to see those distinctions, what it's really saying is this. And it's not a slap on the wrist and say, wrong, wrong, wrong. It's an opportunity for us to then go, what am I believing wrongly? about Christ. And what am I what lie am I believing that is leading me to this conclusion? 
that we should make these distinctions. Now, for some of you, you're going, preacher, you're moving from preaching right into meddling. That you are now pushing us back because you're saying that we shouldn't make any distinctions at all. I stand condemned under the same law of the gospel. And the answer is simply no. There's no room for it in the church. None. So how would we respond? If somebody, two people of different backgrounds came in, how would we respond? Evidently in the church here that James is talking to, they were showing some level of partiality. And James said that's inconsistent with your faith. It is unacceptable. And the next thing he says is that partiality within the Christian church is inconsistent with your faith. The first he said was it's unacceptable. He just flat out said it. It's unacceptable. There's not much pushback on that. And throughout the course of ages of the Christian church, we haven't done this one really well, folks. If we're honest with ourselves, we haven't done this one really well. I was talking when we were in Memphis to uh, pastors from different backgrounds, African-American pastors and, and Latino pastors, and I said, what is it? Why can't we seem to cross some of these lines? And they said, you know what we find out? That it's less about race and it's more about class. The lines of crossing race are less difficult to cross than the lines of crossing over socioeconomic and class status. And that's exactly what James was talking about, of saying that the wealthy normally don't like to hang out with those who aren't quite as wealthy. And guess where, and some of you will be offended, guess where we live? We live in a wealthy place. We do. I've been chastised before of using that word and saying that we're wealthy, but we joked around back in the fall. uh, If you've ever stood, you know, Andy Stanley was saying, if you've ever stood in line talking on your iPhone to go and get the new iPhone, uh, you may be wealthy. If you've ever driven your car to a car dealership and left it there to drive away with a nicer car, uh, you're a wealthy person. If you make over $40,000 a year, In your home, you're considered wealthy within the world. So I think we can take away the distinction that we're not wealthy. So he's saying here, within our culture, the greatest challenge for our church isn't for white, black, uh, and Hispanic to get together. Uh, But, Brenda, do you have that under control uh, yet? So, okay. Now no one's ever going to bring a phone into the... uh, I'm just messing. She can take it. The rest of you are going, my God, what did he just do? So... I've always wanted to do that, and so finally somebody I trust and love enough, I can do that too. Um, now I have no clue where I was uh, on that. I don't. Where we are is the challenge for us is going to be, if we take this one, how are we going to live without partiality with all those who live around us? Most of us live in communities that have what across the front entrance? Gates. Why do you have gates in your entrance to your communities? What's the good um, politically correct reason that we do? For security. You know what it really is? It's to keep folks out who we don't want to deal with. We want to hang with people who have similar backgrounds and similar society and socioeconomic things, and we really just don't want to. We'll let them in to take care of things for us, but then we expect them to leave. Now it starts getting deep, doesn't it? Now it starts messing. Half of you are going to go, I'm done with this place. Um, but James is saying partiality within the Christian community is not only unacceptable, it's inconsistent. He begins in verse 4. 
Have you not men made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the first thing that's inconsistent, he says, you've now placed yourself in a seat of judgment that you're not supposed to sit in. He's saying, when you make distinctions among people, you are now putting yourself into a judgment seat to make decisions and judgments that you were never given the right to make. You can't do that. Who's the one who gets to make the judgments? Who sits on the judgment seat? The answer is always it's God sitting and the Father sitting on the judgment seat. And so you would say, okay, how then does he judge? Well, look at how he judged. You see, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Saying the one who is actually seated in that seat has done something that is contrary to the way that you relate to one another. He's looked down and he didn't look for the best people to choose. He looked for the people who had absolutely nothing to offer him. He looked down into the world and he looked in and he said, I'm going to choose the poor things. I'm going to choose the things that don't look the best. If I was to hold the face, I wouldn't have chosen these people. He says, I've chosen the poor to confound the wealthy. I've chosen the foolish to confound the wise. I've chosen the things that no one else would choose. And so here's here's a little, little something for you. If God has chosen you, if God has come and placed his love on you, then how does he view you? What did you bring to the table? Nothing. He didn't love you because you were all that. He loved you especially because you weren't all that. And you never could be. And so he's saying it's incredibly inconsistent. If God the Father who sits on the judge seat, who sits there, he by his economy looked into the world and didn't hold these distinctions how is it that those who call upon his name would try to displace him from his chair and put into place a different way of judging people he says it's inconsistent He says it's inconsistent with that, and it's inconsistent with the way that we're supposed to love one another. He says the royal law there, it's inconsistent because it breaks the royal law. Do you know what the royal law is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love your your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying love your neighbor without distinction. If you distinguish between one another, then you've broken that law which is the height of all the law. It's the way that we're supposed to live our life, to love God with all that we are, and then that love for him works its way out by loving one another in a very, very different way. Now, folks, this was radical thought in this day. This was incredibly radical because you go and you were to read Philemon, It's a little bitty book in the New Testament. And if you were to read Philemon, what you would find within the book of Philemon is there's Philemon Onesimus, and there's a slave and there's an owner. And God is saying, here's how powerful the gospel is. You two should sit at the same table within the church. Now, maybe in your economies out in the world, you're different. One of you is the owner, one of you is the slave. One of you is the boss, one of you is the worker. One of you is wealthy and one of you is poor. We're not saying it changes everything within the economy of the world and the culture of the world, but within the economy and the culture of the church, everything changes. Either of those men, Onesimus or Philemon, could, if they were filled with the Spirit and had the qualities, could both be elders, couldn't they? A slave and an owner. Wouldn't that be something? You know what the world would do? They'd look around and go, are you nuts? That's not how it works. That within the economy of the church, uh, that there could be those who are equally gifted, male and female, using their gifts within the life of the church. Amazing. Did that happen in that economy? Absolutely not. 
The world would go, I don't understand that. You see, but God is saying everything is turned on its head within the culture and the life of the church. And the challenge is to walk and to not be inconsistent in that. Not to displace God as judge. Not to show favoritism, which breaks the royal law. Because at the end of the day, there's a warning. And this is one of those warnings. I was talking to Matt this morning. I don't like preaching sermons which end with a warning. Uh, Because this one sort of ends with a warning. And the warning is this. Folks... You may be saying to me, Bill, get off your high horse on the whole race partiality thing. On the whole wealthy, not wealthy thing. It's not that big a deal. Why are you making such a big deal about it? Well, the reason I'm making such a big deal about it is the reason James made such a big deal about it. And it's this. He said, if you're willing to break this one, you're guilty of the whole law. You can't just say that this part isn't important and this part is important. You can't just say, I'm going to break this one willfully over here. Because what he says in this passage, it's, it's troubling. For if you then come, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, verse 10, he has become accountable for them all. And you may be saying in your mind, Bill, come on. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little partiality. James is saying we've got to take the little things which don't seem like a big deal and make them a big deal. We've got to deal with every bit of life and not just let us skate with, well, we're generally pretty good. Why do we need to mess with this side over here? Why do we got to go meddling over here? Why do we got to go doing? Because James is saying be careful. He's saying be careful. There's a warning for you. That if you're showing partiality, it probably means you have a general, I don't really care that much about any of it. So what do we do if we find ourselves showing partiality. And by the way, this isn't something that I'm seeing in our church in spades. It's not like I'm standing up here and some of you are going to go, good gracious, what happened this week uh, in the church that Bill's getting off on this tangent and going so strong on this? No, what I'm saying, what I think in this church is we're doing a pretty doggone good job, but we can always get better, can't we? We can do something so radical within this culture that people around us would say something is happening at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church that the only way that I can explain it is God is moving in the midst of that church. And it's great that lots and lots of people are coming around. And that's exciting and that's good. And that lives are being impacted. But one of the things that we want to see as leadership and I want to see so passionately is that we begin to break through some of these other barriers that are there that no other churches are breaking through. That other people are thinking that we're just satisfied with, well, we're just getting a little bit bigger and we're going to have a new campus and we've got some things going on. That's exciting. I want us to break through some lines. And partiality is a huge part of that. How incredible would it be in this culture if those of us who have means, who have been blessed by God with material means, went and served the needs of those who had nothing? Do you think that would make an impact in our culture? And if people looked and said, why are you doing it? You would look at them and go, well... The only reason I know is because when I was fully impoverished, when I was a transgressor of the law, when I was at enmity with God and an adulterer and a hater and an outcast and an orphan, God came and loved me. He didn't put upon me the distinctions that our culture puts upon others. And he came and he showed me this love. That he humbled himself even to the point of a slave and a bond slave and died on a cross for me. Therefore, I can go and love you and not worry about what I get back from you, not worry about who you are. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? 
I was driving up Marshland uh, this week. If you haven't been over there lately, you should go. And on Marshland, uh, just up towards um, the Napa store and Billy Wood in that area, there's a road cut through. And you can look down that road, and what you're going to see is there's an area there where, Frank, how many homes are they going to put in there? 50-something Habitat for Humanity homes uh, are going to get built right there on Marshland. Well, you know who gets Habitat for Humanity homes? People who need them. People who can't afford housing. The working poor within our culture. Wouldn't it be awesome if this church rallied so many volunteers that Habitat for Humanity said, would you stop already? We'd like to include some other organizations as well. Or maybe Deepwell, if you saw the news um, that they're hurting for stuff right now. They don't have enough stuff to give away to the working poor within our community. Wouldn't it be great if our church said, well, you know what, we look around our houses and we have rooms that we don't even use and they're just filled with stuff and some of us have so much stuff that we have storage areas that we keep stuff that we're never going to use again because someday maybe we'll just need it. And maybe we just overwhelmed living well with that. And we said, we're going to do this and give. Maybe it just so got into us. <coughs> that we're going to break through these distinctions. But guys, here's how it's going to work. It's not going to work programmatically. Okay? It's not going to work by the leadership of this church creating a program or hiring a pastor to say, this is going to be the pastor who's going to lead us in doing that. Here's how it's going to work. It's going to work right here. At the very end, partiality within the Christian community is overcome by mercy. Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment, is without mercy, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are having a difficult time breaking through some of these humanly created constructs that are barriers between us, what you don't need to do is just try harder what you need to do is go back to the scriptures and go back to the cross and look upon that cross and see that Christ didn't consider you that way. To look at it again and again and again until it so softens your heart that it breaks it. That it so penetrates into your heart that when you see distinctions and favoritisms made within your life, that it, it hurts. That you are so deeply convicted that maybe it leads you to tears of going, oh my, I stand absolutely condemned. And you know what you do when that comes and the Spirit is so gracious to you that it shows up within you and says, boy, I have some deeply held distinctions in me. There are people I really gravitate to and then there's other people that I just as soon not. You know what you get to do with that stuff that comes up to the surface? Take it right to that cross and say, Christ died for that. And in filling that with his spirit, it then gives you a power to overcome even your deeply held prejudices. Now, you may think that I'm talking just about wealth and poverty, race and all. But guys, this goes across lines. This goes across all lines. Do you think this is applicable within our elementary and high schools? Do you think there's distinctions made within those schools? The haves and the have-nots, the pretty people and the not-so-pretty people? those who are athletic and those who aren't athletic, those who get asked to the prom and those who don't. There are distinctions all around. Wouldn't it be awesome for our young people and you young people who are here that you so get this gospel within you that you're the person who goes and you love the unlovely person? 
that you're willing to take some grief from some of the cool people because you're willing to hang out over here with those who aren't so cool and to show them the love of Jesus Christ because you realized you weren't all that cool in God's economy. You just weren't all that. And you went and did it. You think that would start to begin to transform our high schools and our elementary schools? Anybody believe that? Man, yes, where our kids are going to learn that. Adults, guess where our kids are going to learn that? From us at home, in this church, watching us. Wouldn't it be awesome if we got it in such a way that entire families and generations were changed because we believed and wanted to take at face value God's word which said this. Folks, there's a lot of other things we could talk about, but today we're going to talk about partiality. And what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at a cross that showed no partiality at all. And we're going to let it wash over us in such a way that we begin to then love in impartial ways to people who we didn't think we could ever love across lines and see what God has to do. Wouldn't that be fun? Is that going to be difficult? Yes. It's going to be difficult. But what we're talking about doing... What we're trying to do as a church is to do things that are so difficult, to try things, as Randy Pope and as uh, Perimeter Church says, to try things so great that they are doomed to fail unless God shows up. Okay? You with me on that one? That we want to try things that are so great that they're doomed to fail unless God shows up. And I'm challenging on a big one right here. To cross lines and come in and see God do great things. We're about to change over this whole campus. We're about to spend an awful lot of money uh, to make this. And if all we're doing it for is to take care of our needs and to make us and our families more comfortable, we need to stop right now. But if we're doing it and our motivation is to create a place that is a launch pad for doing something radically different within our culture that will have an eternal impact within the lives of the people around, we should continue to do it and we should do more things like it. And we should then have to come back in a few years because this place has gotten so abused by ministry. There have been so many people in here who have come and they've lived and they've learned and they've done things that then we have to redo it again in a few years. And we say, hey, praise God, this place got beaten up, but it got beaten up for the right purpose. Not because there's a bunch of little Christian kids running around in here tearing the place up and spilling stuff on carpet but because there's an awful lot of people in a neighborhood across the street or a neighborhood down the street who don't know how to properly act within our culture. And they came into this place, and they got to meet Jesus and to be with Jesus' family. That gets exciting. So that's our challenge. Let's look at a cross that was impartial and see where we let it go in our lives. Let's pray. God, these are difficult things we talk about, and we'll acknowledge that. In the grand scheme of things, it may seem small, but our deeply held constructs of how we relate to one another, how we we so desperately desire the approval of certain types of people within our culture, we so desperately want them to validate our life. God, would we hear from you, the only one who has the power and the authority and the ability to validate our life. And would we hear the validation that comes to us in Christ. And when we stand in that strength and in the renewal of that part of our life, that we could go out and live and love in such a way that we don't care how anybody else responds. Father, let us hear from you today.
would we see you? And would we go out in your love to those around us? Forgive us when we haven't. And steer us and empower us to live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.